Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Curator's Choice, the podcast for history nerds and museum lovers. Today, we will be visiting the Indian River Life Saving Station in Rehibeth Beach, Delaware. Now, these life saving stations were located all up and down the eastern United States coastline in about the late 1800s, early 1900s, but unfortunately, there is only a few that remain. We are going to hear from Laura Charles as she tells us about the Indian River Station that the Delaware State Parks manages. She shares with us what daily life was like for these men working in the stations, and we also explore some of the life-saving tools that were used before modern technology. And I have to admit, some of them are really clever, like the liar gun and the breeches buoy. Yes, breeches, like your bottom breeches. If you would like to see pictures from this episode, you can check us out on Facebook or on Instagram, or you can make your way over to curatorschoicepodcast.com. For those who can't seem to get enough of Curator's Choice, we also have a Patreon page with support tiers that offer early access and a patron-exclusive monthly bonus episode. Okay, let's get started hearing from Laura. Yeah, so the quick and dirty history is um, back in 1871, the government basically created a light, nationwide life-saving service, which consisted of these life-saving stations that dotted the coastline every, roughly every five to seven miles, the entire Atlantic coast, and all around the Great Lakes, and there were a couple on the West Coast as well. Dick stations in Delaware, um, ours and the other one, at, and another one at Cape Henlopen State Park, which doesn't, it's no longer standing, but the two of those were the first of the six to be built and they were built the same year, 1876. It was completely staffed with six surfmen and a keeper on an official um, went on watch January 1st, 1877. And then it was an active life-saving station until 1915. Um, and then in 1915, the U.S. Life Saving Service merged with the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service, which is kind of like marine enforcement, and that formed the Coast Guard. And so our station here was an active Coast Guard station until 1962. And in 1962, if you know anything about the history of Delaware, that will come up as a huge nor'easter, huge coastal storm that stalled off the coast, low pressure system that was sort of over top of us for five high tide cycles during a new moon. So huge, extreme high tides. And it left seven feet of sand in the first floor of the what was the Coast Guard station. So, so much damage after that storm, they decommissioned it and they rebuilt uh, the current Coast Guard station, which is about a mile and a half south of here, right adjacent to the Indian River Inlet. So from 1962 on for a couple decades, it just sort of sat here and deteriorated from not being used. I know in the 70s, it was used as kind of like a maintenance yard for the highway department and the parks department together. Um, there were some offices, I think, upstairs in the early 90s. And then finally, in the late 90s, a nonprofit called the Delaware Seashore Preservation Foundation uh, raised enough funding to get it restored um, into a museum. Um, the era that there, we go for is around 1905. Um, and then in 2004, they turned it over to state parks, and we've been running it ever since. 
So I'm kind of curious, was it also considered like a lighthouse station? I mean, you said that it was staffed by a keeper. Did it also have a light or was it mostly just these um, lifesavers who would go out and save people? So you're on the right uh, train of thought there and like keeping watch and and aiding mariners in distress and and uh, but our there was no lighthouse here. I guess the closest lighthouse, there's uh, the Fenwick Lighthouse, which is probably 10 miles south of here. So there was no light, but the surfmen were responsible for patrolling the beach every night in shifts. And there was always somebody on watch in the cupola, the little watchtower on top. And if they saw, if they saw a, a ship coming too close to a shoal that they knew of or getting in danger in any way, they would send off flares and hang flags and do what they could to get in touch with the captain. Um, so there, there is a little bit of overlap in the reasons that lighthouses and life-saving stations exist. Was the reason that there were the life-saving stations every few so miles because you couldn't have a, light, a lighthouse in every single one of those stations? Or was it just there was a lot of people that were drowning? <laughs> so basically, I mean, lighthouses existed long before life-saving stations and they serve good purposes, but I, it was really, a, there were some houses of refuge and the life-saving service consisted of these little houses of refuge that were uh, scattered about. There weren't enough of them. They were manned by volunteers. It wasn't very well managed. And the idea was like, if a ship were to run aground or get into trouble and the sailors themselves were lucky enough to make it to shore that these these little houses of refuge would give them a place to get some food, some warm clothes and before they they moved on. And it was somewhat effective, but not enough. And then there's the famous winter of 1870 to 1871, which there was, it was just a really bad winter, especially in New England. And there's a tremendous loss of life that year. And there was a big public outcry that essentially said, we need to do something about this. Um, we need to get this life-saving service staffed with paid surfmen and make it a formal government agency so that uh, they can respond to these ships in need. So the loss of life during this serious winter, was it, I mean, I'm assuming it must have been loss of life correlated to the people who were on the water or were these life-saving stations in charge of the land and sea? Just the land. I mean, in some cases... I mean, we can go out on a tangent here. And in some cases, um, if somebody was in the area and they were injured and they were near a life-saving station, they could go to the life-saving station for help. But for the most part, um, they focus their eyes on the sea. Basically, what I tell people when they tour the museum, it, it was a lot more dangerous and it was the most common form of transportation in our area at the time. So there was a lot of people moving out on the water, but there was also... A, a lack of the technology that we have today. So you didn't have VHF radios, you didn't have radar, you didn't have GPS, you navigated by the stars, you tried to stay close to land so you could see landmarks and know where you were. But if you get too close to land then you run aground on shoals or sandbars just offshore. Um, and so it was, it was a treacherous form of transportation even though it was the most efficient. So you have these life-saving stations to intervene in these kinds of situations, I'm assuming where maybe um, a, a ship ran aground. What was the most common call that they got to go out and save someone? You said they had surfers, so I'm just imagining like this incredible heroic act of going out on these surfboards and grabbing people out of the water, but I don't know if I'm just, you know, fantasizing or what. Well, you're you're relating it to what you know today of life-saving and, and lifeguards, uh, beach patrol. So beach patrol, I guess beach patrol of the late 19th century was surfmen. 
and they would patrol the beaches looking for signs of ships in distress. Um, most of the, the shipwrecks that occurred in our area was running aground on sandbars during a storm. Waves are crashing down on top of the ship, kind of seeping through. Ships were made of wood. They broke apart easily. And most sailors did not know how to swim. And so, yeah, it's something we take for granted today. Like everybody takes it swim lessons as a kid and so you just don't think much about it. But um, it was not the norm in uh, the 1870s, 1880s. And then our station was in pretty close proximity to the Indian River Inlet, which is connects the Atlantic Ocean to our inland bays, the Indian River Bay. And it's, it is constant, before it was stabilized with jetties in 1940, prior to that, it was constantly shifting and shoaling in and, and, and it would move. Sometimes it'd be a little further north. And, and, and so even if you had a nautical chart as a captain in the late 19th century, it would it wouldn't last very long because the shoals were constantly moving, the inlet was moving. And so that was a really difficult place to navigate through. So what about the day-to-day life of these men who are working in these life-saving stations? I'm assuming it was only men during that time period. Yeah. So let's see. Our station, most stations had six to seven surfmen, sometimes eight and a keeper. Um, Ours most of the time had six and they drilled during the day and patrolled at night. And that was it. (laughs) Um, Our area was pretty remote at the time. Their families were not allowed to live at the station with them. Their families usually lived in neighboring towns like Ocean View, um, Frankfurt, um, some in Long Neck on the other side of Rehoboth Bay. And uh, they only got to see their families if they were lucky once a week. So it was cold and lonely and boring, I would imagine. Um, Did they at least get paid well? I mean, there's got to be something. <laughs> yeah, they, yes. And it was, it was exciting for um, a local, local person to become a surfman because it's a government job in a pretty much remote area. Um, they got paid $10 a week, which was pretty decent at the time. And it was reasonable. So they drilled, they did, they took a, they had two um, main forms of rescues. So one, what, if there was a ship in distress, they would decide whether or not they were going to use the surf boat or the breaches buoy apparatus system. So see, now you're back to speaking a foreign language. <laughs> I'll explain. Um, so the surf boat's pretty straightforward. It was, it's a, a wooden boat that's Um, with the boat on the cart itself is over a ton. And these men would drag that thing out on the cart to the beach by hand. They did not have horses at our site um, for transporting these things. And they would have to push this giant heavy boat on this cart over the dunes, launch it into the surf, row it out to the ship in distress, get the sailors off, maybe some more equipment, and then land it safely back on the beach. So they're not in a harbor or a marina that's protected. They launch directly from the beach into the waves. And the boat was designed specifically for that. And then get the boat back into the station. Um, So that was one type of rescue. The other is the beach apparatus system or uh, the the breaches buoy system. We kind of use those two terms interchangeably. So this would be a method most most shipwrecks that occurred within 500 yards of the shoreline was they they you they preferred this system because they didn't have to take the boat out and put their own lives in danger. So 
the life-saving service had this ingenious process of setting up. I tell people it's like a 19th century zip line. And so they would use a Lyle gun, which I'll talk about later. That's one of the artifacts that we have in the museum. So the Lyle gun um, with the gun and the carriage together is 186 pounds, it's solid bronze. And it would fire off a 17 pound steel projectile with a line attached. So that's their way of throwing a line out to the ship is they use, it, they use three or four ounces of black powder to, to get it out there. And then from there, they would rig up a series of other lines. One was um, called the whip line, which they would have to attach to the mast of the ship or any, anywhere solid on the ship that they could find. And uh, that was like a continuous clothesline system. So they had a pulley system. And then there was like the hawser, which is a big fat line that also got attached to the mast. And that's kind of what the, the zip line would be attached to. And from that would be hanging a life ring with a pair of pants sewn into it. Hence the word breeches buoy. And so they would use the whip line, pull on one side, send the breeches buoy up to the ship. Somebody climbs in, they pull on the other side of the whip line and bring them safely to shore. You're right, that is genius. It was extremely effective. They they drilled on it every week. It's it's amazing that just a whole bunch of rope and a little bit of uh, ingenuity could save countless lives. And even myself, I'm having a really hard time like placing my mindset back in these kinds of situations because I mean, even when you said earlier that they were wooden boats that broke apart easily, in my head I was just picturing all of these, you know, metal vessels going around. Or when you were talking about the the vessel that goes out to save them, I'm like, oh, you know, just put some gas in the motor and kick it on and go out. And no, they were rowing. So you really have to kind of imagine like all of these dangers and all of these situations, but way before any technology. And then they come up with something like that. That's really, really smart. It has a special place in my heart. We actually do a reenactment of the drill several times throughout the summer. Um, and we're one of two locations left in the country that still does it. So we live fire the Lyle gun with a projectile and a line attached. And then we have in our courtyard right next to the museum is called the rec pole or the drill pole. And every life saving station would have one because they needed something to do their weekly drills on. And so that simulates the mast of the ship. And we fire the gun and then we have we have two staff members in period uniform climb up into the, the rec pole about 20 feet off the ground and we rig up all the lines and we bring them safely to shore. So these guys obviously had to be super fit, um, very, very strong individuals. And you said they had family back home. So when they weren't, were they just constantly on duty for all six men at a time? Was it kind of switching around? When did they get time to go home and see their families? How long did they even stay in that station? So when the service, when our station first started, the service was only seasonal. Um, it was about September to May and they had summers off because um, most of the horrific winter storms happened between September and May and, and summers were really quiet. The keeper was there year round and just kind of kept watch. And it worked out well. A lot of the surfmen were they had to they had to be literate, which I find interesting. Um, and they also had to have an understanding of the local waterways. So these were local men. They're not pulling somebody's, you know, somebody knows somebody and his uncle works in the government and oh yeah, I got my government job and I've never seen the ocean. Like it wasn't it, it wasn't like that. So they had to know the local waterways. And so a lot of them were fishermen and farmers. Um, and 
And it's kind of cool. I think when it was seasonal, it worked out well because when it was off season from life-saving, it was on season for, for fishing and farming. So yeah, that worked out really perfect. It's kind of like how the oyster men would, uh, you know, they'd be farmers during the, during the summer. And then during the midwinter, they would be go out collecting oysters. Right. And as far as seeing their family, I mean, they did get, so they get, I don't know what the regulations actually said about how much time they could take off, but like you see in the daily log books and so-and-so was, was home for the day or the weekend, or this person was off in business in Philadelphia. Um, so they did get to see their families, but I wouldn't say any more than once a week. And uh, it's interesting in some other parts of the country, I think in New Jersey, especially, there were some areas where the life-saving station was built and it was seen as more of an attractive place to build a home. And so little villages would pop up around the life-saving station. Um, and so families could live basically on the grounds or close to it. Our site is a little more challenging. We're not on a barrier island, but we're on a barrier beach. Um, and so it's, you gotta go several miles in either direction to get to the mainland. But I do, th I have heard that some like the Jersey shore towns, some of them originated because there was a life-saving station there, which is kind of cool. So I'm assuming these guys must've known some kind of first aid as well, or was there transportation to take people to a hospital? What was that like? Yeah. So every day of the week, they had something specific that they were, they had to do based on the national regulations. So I think it was Mondays and Wednesdays, they had to drill on the surf boat and Tuesdays they drilled on the beach apparatus system. And I believe Thursday, I could be getting the days wrong, but one of the Thursday or Friday, they, they worked on first aid skills. Um, and they, the 19th century version of CPR is actually kind of hysterical. It's called resuscitation of the apparently drowned. And I, we have some old documents that sort of illustrate it. And, and the, the victim is like laying face down on the ground and they're like pumping their, their elbows back like a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so effective. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they, they practice first aid another day of the week, they would work on wigwag, which was, um, like a earlier form of semaphore, um, just using flags to communicate with other, other surfmen that were further down the beach or with, with some of the, the ships. So, I mean, it makes sense that they might want little communities to pop up around there because these guys are probably one of the easiest accessible for people who <laughs> might need some first aid. They were probably the most trained around. During the time that our station was an active life-saving station, we had three keepers, um, and and that over the span of 37 years. And one of them was there for 24 years, Washington Vickers. And um, he actually trained as a nurse during the Civil War. Um, he, he fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. He was wounded in his left forearm. Um, he recuperated in, in a hospital in Richmond, and then he got a medical background. Um, so that was not always the norm for a keeper or a surfman to have a medical background, but it's, it's neat that he did. There's this one story where some, just a, somebody was, uh, duck hunting in the marshlands near the, near the station, something malfunctioned with his gun. I'm not really sure what happened, but he blew the tip of his nose off. Oh my gosh. Literally like hanging by a thread. Um, and he was close enough to the life-saving station and he went there for help. And apparently Vickers gave him some brandy and sewed his nose back on. <laughs> wow. 
yeah, people did seek out his medical background. <laughs> so you had a couple of artifacts, one you already kind of alluded to earlier, but what were some of the things that you guys wanted to, to focus on today? I already sort of talked about the wild gun. Um, one of the other things that um, I find really cool are, are two artifacts that are directly related to beach patrols. So I didn't talk much about beach patrols, but basically sundown to sunup, um, these men would patrol the beaches. I feel like these guys just never got to sleep. Um, they did. Sometimes you had the graveyard shift and it was usually four hour shifts that you had to go out on the beach for. So if you had to work from 12 to four and then come back and sleep for two hours before you'd get up and drill again. <laughs> and then there was always somebody in the cupola as well, keeping watch. But basically every shift, uh, two surfmen would go out. One would go north, one would go south. So when I have a, a tour group in front of me um, and I'm explaining this process, I say, hey, what's your name? And you say, oh, my name's Ayla. Like, okay, Ayla, you're, you're going to head north. And it's a beautiful evening. It's very cold, but it's crisp, full moon, no wind. And you're thinking to yourself, there is no way a ship is going to run aground. It's a beautiful evening. The moon is bright. They can see. I'm exhausted from drilling all day, so I'm just going to sneak off into the dunes once I get beyond the station that the guy in the cupola can't see me anymore and take a nap in the dunes. I didn't realize today I was going to be such a crappy employee, but. <laughs> so, but do you think you're going to get away with this? Are you going to get away with taking a nap in the dunes? I, I would assume that I would if there was no accidents. Nope. You're not going to get away with it um, because so, um, you're going to carry one of these with you. This is a surfman's check. It's basically just like a metal ID tag. It has your district number, station number, and surfman number. It looks almost like a police sheriff badge or something. Mm -hmm. And so you would carry this with you. And once you get two, three miles up the beach, you're eventually going to come in contact with the surf surfman that's patrolling south from the Rehoboth Beach Station. And so you will exchange your checks and then you come back to the station, you show the other guys surfman's check to the keeper, and that way the keeper knows you did your entire patrol. And that's pretty much how they ensured the, the entire Atlantic coast was covered every night. That's super simple, but really effective because there's no way to fake that. Right. Um, and people ask me, well, what if the other guy gets lazy? And then you have to walk all the way to the next station. So you're going twice as far. And then, you know, I asked somebody else in the group, okay, what's your name? Okay, you're going south. You're thinking the same exact thing. And because you're going south, you're eventually going to run into the Indian River Inlet. And so you're not going to be able to exchange your check with the surfman that's coming north from Bethany Beach Station. So you're going to get away with a nap, right? And then they're like, hmm, probably not. <laughs> And so um, this, when there's nobody to exchange a check with, the surfman would carry a patrol clock with them and it had a little leather strap that carried it like a purse. And um, they would get down to the inlet and there, there would be a small box with a key inside and it would be post on a post. Um, and they would take the key out and there's a keyhole in the patrol clock. They turn it and that, pokes a little hole in a piece of paper inside the patrol clock that tells the keeper what time that surfman arrived at the inlet. And so it was really the earliest form of a punch clock. And we have yeah. three different models of, of patrol clocks on in our collection, which is pretty neat. Um, and some of them still have the little piece of paper inside with little holes poked in them. 
what's interesting is sometimes people make a connection and they say, is that why there's a road like a mile north of here called Keybox Road? And it is. That's where it gets its name from. And Keybox Road is not really a road. It's actually a, a drive on access uh, to the beach for people who have uh, their surf fishing permits to drive on the beach. But that's one of the access points. It's Keybox Road. So were these boxes placed basically anywhere they wouldn't be able to physically meet up with another person walking their patrol? Exactly. So all over the, all up and down the coast. Yes. Only when there was an inlet or some obstruction. You know what I mean? Like, otherwise yeah. they would just use the checks. Um, really cool. How many, How many so, and you guys have, have a couple, couple of the different, different checks? checks? Yeah, none of them are originals. The patrol clocks are originals, but the, the checks are, are reproductions. How did you guys, how did you guys know what they looked like? Yeah. <laughs> Did you, did you guys, guys how, did how did you know, you know um, what, what they, they looked look like, like? Did, are there other, other uh, there are yeah there's other life-saving station museums in the country um i'm actually uh, a member of the u.s life-saving service heritage association um and so it's a great group of people some people are just really passionate about maritime history some people are descendants of surfmen and some are people like me who uh run museums or um you know, might own a life-saving station. There's people who live in life-saving stations that have been restored into residences. So um, it's kind of a, a neat uh, organization to trade stories and um, loan artifacts to each other if we need to, that kind of thing. So I'm curious about the log books. You said that they, you know, that's how you could tell like if someone went home or not. Um, is that something where kind of similar with the lighthouses, it's they had to write every day what they had done? Yes. Do you guys have the, the log books? We have copies of them. We have, so they're all in Philadelphia in, in National Archives. Um, and right before COVID hit, we took two trips up to Philadelphia to digitize every single logbook entry. We got two thirds through them and then COVID hit and their, their research room has been shut down ever since. <laughs> I mean, they're only high res images. Then we need once we get all those, I'm hoping to get an intern to help transcribe them and find any information that's worthy <laughs> or anything out of the blue that's not your normal. Like today we drilled on the beach apparatus system. Here's who patrolled each shift. Here's how many schooners passed today. Like it's kind of dry information, but it's also another cool thing about the log books is um, they kept daily weather records. And it's fascinating to look like July 4th in the 1880s, it's like a high of 74. <laughs> so I would love once we get all that information to track all the, the data, the weather data, and then compare it today and maybe, you know, turn it into like a climate change type of program. Well, that's really, really cool. I feel like I learned a lot about life-saving on the coast, which I did not know before. And I was looking online just to kind of see what kind of um, activities you guys do. And I saw your lantern tour coming up in February. So I was going to try and talk my boyfriend into joining me. We could uh, we could come out and maybe I could actually see the, um, the museum as well. Okay, excellent. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. The work I do for this podcast would be all for naught if I didn't have amazing listeners like you. So thank you. Coming up next, we will be up in New York talking about Fort Niagara. Fort Niagara is the oldest continuously occupied military site in North America. It was controlled by the French, the British, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Coast Guard, and it also has a French castle that dates back to 1726. So be on the lookout for that. And also, please consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron of the show. We have two different support tiers. The historian tier is just $2 a month, and it includes early episode access. And the curator tier includes a bonus monthly patron-exclusive episode for $5 a month. To get to that, just visit patreon.com slash curatorschoice. Thanks again for being a listener, and you guys have a great rest of your week. <laughs>